Welcome to the Life on Repeat podcast with me, Laura Valancourt, licensed mental health counselor, geriatric mental health specialist, and dementia coach. I'm so happy that you found us. Hello, everyone. I am happy to be here today with our guest, Maggie Syme. Maggie Syme is a PhD, MPH, and project director at Marcus Institute for Aging Research, and she is a licensed psychologist. And Maggie is here today to talk to us about sexual health and sexual wellness And I'm just so happy to get to have this conversation with you. I know many of our guests are going to learn a lot and hopefully walk away feeling validated about their experience, whatever that may be, (laughs) and with some maybe new way of looking at things and maybe some tips that they can utilize too. So thanks, Maggie, for coming. Yeah, those are great goals. I like (laughs) (laughs) We We can do this. We've got it. That's right. So tell us, maybe I'd love to just start our conversation, just getting to know you a little bit better, helping our listeners get an idea of who you are. Tell us a little bit about your work and what you're up to now. Absolutely. So it's been a bit of a long winding path to where I am, but I started out in working with older adults really early in my training. It was something that I was so comfortable with because I grew up in rural setting, farm town, where um, there's a more of a traditional like elder presence. And that was true for me. And I, those were the folks that I just kept gravitating to clinically. And the issues that are common really rang true for me. It was something comfortable. So when I was doing my training, I also ran into my mentor, Linda Mona, who is at the Long Beach, California VA, and she does disability and sexuality work. The disability was something that I was interested in as well, rehab psychology. And all of a sudden she like the glass shattered, right? Like, whoa, everything that you're saying is so relevant to older adults and the population that I'm really interested in. So I kind of took those golden nuggets and started working on that and applying it in my area of expertise in aging and thought, these are soapbox issues, right? This is something that we have to fight against ageism, against moralism, (laughs) against all things that kind of set this at such a far reach for folks in that age bracket right now that I couldn't help it. I was just drawn in. And I was also really interested in health issues. So everything just sort of fit together and it took off in that respect. And right now, (laughs) winding all the way through, I did all kinds of research and went into academia, decided I wanted to get closer to actual families and care and on the ground, touch the people research. So I got out of that game and I came to be a project director here at the Marcus Institute, where it is a lot of in-person participants, older folks who are at all spectrum of ability. It's really fun for me. Good change. Amazing. I thank you for sharing your story. I I know there's so much more. 
But I love meeting people and just learning about a little bit about what feeds their spirit in this work and why they do this work and the parts that are exciting to them. And I love what you said. There's a few elements about growing up in a smaller community. And I also grew up in a real tiny little community and and spent a lot of time with the elders in our community. And it's so important when you look back how much that can shape not only who you are as a person, but shape your ability to understand in just different ways. Yeah. There is so much. I'm, I'm already thinking of questions to be shooting out at you. Okay. So okay. I just want to jump right in if that's okay. Absolutely. Great. Great. So I'm really curious about, well, I don't even know how to unpack all this, but with each generation, right? There's, I don't know if you would even call it an evolution, but a different perspective on what healthy sexuality looks like or, or what um, mm-hmm. intimacy in general looks like. Mm-hmm. And so we're working with folks that are older typically. And so they were raised with different generational experiences or expectations or ideals. So can you tell us a little bit, just give us a little bit of kind of a baseline as far as, yeah, give us a little idea of set the stage for sort of the backdrop of, and I know we're, I know this is sometimes we're making generalizations here. (laughs) There's a lot of ways that we can narrow it down. Yeah. Whether we're talking about culture or we're talking about, you know, where someone was raised or how they were raised or their religious background. There's so many pieces that influence uh, our idea of of sex and intimacy. So Mm -hmm. yeah, maybe set the stage a little there for us. Yeah. I'd love to do that because you're right. There are so many different factors that affect someone's own journey into sexual wellness or maybe back into sexual wellness, depending on where they began. And I like to think of a few different buckets or circles, if you will, that are really key. And one of those is biology. One of those is psychology. One of those is social slash relational and a big one of those, which probably really encapsulates all of them, is culture. So they're in values, you know, of all of the different cultural identities which you've grown up with over time that have affected how you view the world. So on the biological side for older adults, there are a few things that are happening that fuel these myths that we shouldn't be doing it, that's dirty, that's not for us, that's, I can't get it up anymore. I mean, you've heard everything from I don't want to anymore to, I can't to, this isn't for us. But there are some things that happen to our bodies that change that make our wellness journey maybe bend in the road a little bit. And when we think about younger olds, like maybe the late boomers that are coming in, they're probably just on the cusp of experiencing some of those normal age-related changes that are due to sex hormones and even just wear and tear on your body that might affect some of their approach to wellness. And as you get later on into adulthood, it tends to be that you accumulate a little bit more physical stress in your body and things become more difficult that maybe weren't before for some folks. And we tend to, on the whole, shift our behavioral repertoire in sex to a little bit more intimate focused behaviors and a few more tricks need to go in that box if we're going to have a robust, sexually healthy experience. Because again, for some folks, things have been taken off the menu due to different 
biological, physical, just conditions that they experience. And if you layer disease on top of those things, those can make those even more challenging. So one of the things that is really important to think about is to think flexibly about what you're doing. It might not be sex with a capital S, the way that we've always thought about it throughout our whole lives, but that doesn't mean that it isn't sexual and isn't intimate, isn't building up your wellness. So that's some of that biological bucket, but these all, you know, come together, but this is really helpful to be thinking to kind of separate those pieces out a little bit and look at through different lens. Yeah, for sure. Because I think it's just all in a big puzzle, right, of what it looks like and what are some of these pieces. And a big portion of, of the pieces come from the psychological bucket as well, which for when we're thinking about older ages, we tend to see sexual self-esteem, maybe sexual confidence, maybe feeling sexy, feeling beautiful. Again, we get those ageist myths of older is ugly, right? Wrinkles and gray hair and sagging things. And it's certainly not acceptable in terms of society. And I used air quotes there, I realized, so I better yeah. say that out loud. <laughs> air quotes. <laughs> yes. Because that does a number on your mind, right? Like I don't look like what I'm supposed to look like in order to be a sexual being that's wanted, that is beautiful and celebrated for my sexual body. And that can do a number of things, including make you more hesitant to pursue things, feel even guilt or shame about wanting to. And so those are some of those things. Another bigger thing I think that comes out is agency or motivation. So if you're older and single for whatever reason, either not married before widow, et cetera, you have to exercise a lot of agency to put yourself out there and think, I want this, I'm going to go get this and feeling powerful and accepted, but also free to make healthy decisions for yourself. So not be coerced into things, not be a victim of things, et cetera, like you would at any age. But sometimes when we're older, we we tend to be more vulnerable in society in terms of we're not the most protected folk. And in order to be, to know that you can go out there and be safe sexually and safe intimately, you may need some, some coaching, right? About what it's like Uh, in particular, like, what is it like to date online and keep yourself safe? What is it like to meet people virtually that you know nothing about and meet them out in a space? Like things that I think previous generations, including my own Gen X and definitely millennials and Zs, they're going to have more savvy with that when they age. But right now, online dating was like, didn't even exist because the internet didn't exist when some of these folks were dating. So there are things that are psychologically challenging to doing some of that stuff that we need to think about to like either help ourselves or support other people in their journey. Huge. I mean, just you, you're just unpacking these layer after layer, (laughs) really layer after layer. And I think about, you know, we've talked so much about the the sense of isolation that older adults are experiencing through the pandemic. And, you know, it's just really been highlighted. And I think, wow, this is just another layer of isolation too. not Mm -hmm. only the lack of potential lack of intimacy, but then the the not knowing how to initiate it, even the mm-hmm. not knowing how to how do you date in a world like this? You know, <laughs> how do you meet people? What is acceptable? What isn't? How do you feel about that? There's just layers and layers of 
of that. And I think ultimately, well, I'm not a, a sex expert, but sex and intimacy is about connection. It's about mm-hmm. connecting with another human being uh, at its basic level. So, um, sure. yeah. So which actually brings us to the social relational bucket. If, if you're yes. ready to go there, let's go there. there. <laughs> yes. Okay. So putting this in an aging context, one of the things that we see the most sort of growth and or challenging is folks who are trying to develop new relationships, which I talked about a little bit before, but connection um, becomes more difficult when the opportunities are fewer and when society offers you fewer opportunities to connect like ours does for older adults, that becomes very difficult. And for older women, there is kind of a double jeopardy here because you're older, so you're not privileged to have all these dating sites and bars for just safe places for older people to meet, etc. But then you have the added difficulty of there's fewer men if you're in a heterosexual relationship or if that's what you're seeking. There are just statistically fewer older men out there your age than there are older women because of life expectancy. So you may have lost a partner already to divorce or otherwise, but the older you get, the fewer and fewer potential male partners there will be. And even if that, if you are not a heterosexual orientation, you can imagine how many fewer people are out in the older ages and where in the world do you meet people who are of the same sex and interested in same sex relationships when that kind of relationship when you were coming of age was taboo, if not illegal in some cases. There are some bigger challenges to accessing opportunity and partnerships in older age that are real (laughs) and difficult. I mean, I joke about it with some of my friends when I was in my thirties, like, wow, it seems like there's no good guys out there. But I mean, there's literally fewer guys out there or partners, potential partners out there when you're older. Wow. And in older women. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And then I know that there was one more, right? The you were Yeah, cultural. Cultural. Yeah. Cultural. So one of the big hitters I'm here is always it's a massive soapbox for me to no matter what it is, sex, health, anything. But culturally we have all been sort of indoctrinated into this idea that older means these very negative things and or benignly negative, whatever it is, funny, et cetera, but they're still negative. So sex is not for older people in our society. And in fact, it is dirtier if you're older. It might be amoral if you're a woman and outside of reproductive age for some generations and or like still you internalized. It's definitely and older adults are asexual, according to our society, right? They're not sexual beings. They're not viewed as such. So if you're trying to navigate the waters of being sexual and intimate, and the world is telling you you ought to be, this is a, a bigger challenge. So that's one thing that all older adults and all individuals, actually, we internalize those things throughout our whole lives. And they will show up um, when that's activated when we feel older and when we think to ourselves, oh, Jesus, this isn't right, you know, oh, I shouldn't be doing this, should I? But there's all kinds of intersection cultural beliefs about that. Some people are from cultures where 
intimate relationships outside of marriage or your primary partner are not okay. And therefore, if you're divorced and or you're widowed, you know, then you're kind of destined to sort of be alone in terms of intimate connection that isn't from your adult children or grandkids or whatever friends. But there are some cultural beliefs that don't really help us necessarily to engage and socially connect in intimacy and sexuality when we're older. But there are also some that can, right? So I think, again, the boomers, like the younger boomers now, who are going to age in, the Gen Xers like myself, we're going to see more and more ability for folks to think more fluidly about sexuality at different ages, different groups, et cetera. So that hopefully will be not, a, it probably isn't a completely a generational artifact because ages some won't go away that easily. <laughs> Right. But it is lessening for some. So the, there's good news that there is a lot. It feels more broader than it has been. And in fact, there's research to tell us that sexual attitudes are getting more liberal in current older adults, but also in a lot of other generations. And a lot of the research that I do where you kind of say, well, this is what older adult sex is. What do you believe? Younger folks are a lot more neutral than they have been about it. Not as, I mean, they might say ew to their friends' faces to say face, but when they're answering a, an anonymous survey, they'll be like, fine by me. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. there's hope. There's, there's hope. hope in that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, the, the, this is such a good, good conversation. So let's, let's pivot a little. What does this yeah. look like with dementia? Whether you are a person who is living with dementia or you are a care, you're a family, your spouse that is living with somebody who has dementia. Yeah. And this is a really key space because if we didn't talk about older adults and sex, we definitely don't talk about older adults who have dementia and their sexuality. Right. right. <laughs> it's like a triple taboo. So I'm really excited that this is a topic here because it's something I think that not many people get access to. So I will say that a lot of the normal rules of the biological, psychological, social, and cultural will apply. People with dementia still are persons. They still have needs for intimacy, for connection, for psychological, sexual, intimate fulfillment in a lot of ways. But things do change, particularly as you progress in the disease. Like if it's an Alzheimer's, definitely. And perhaps um, you might progress as well if you have other types of dementia into more impairment. It can get tricky to navigate some of those things because you tend to lose a little bit more of your awareness of self and awareness of environment and what is going on and understanding of your own needs and how to express those. This can be extremely difficult on the caregiver and particularly for those partners or spouses, partners who become caregivers to watch that sort of transition happen where my loved one went from sort of distressfully aware of their condition to blissfully unaware of who they are and who I am and what their role was with me. I went from wife, partner, husband to caregiver and vaguely familiar person to them. So this puts a huge strain on that relationship um, for sure. Doesn't mean that the person with dementia, your loved one, doesn't have a need for things, doesn't want to be touched by you, doesn't appreciate a stroke of the skin, a caress of the face, a, even a kiss, if that is a place where they're at to accept that from someone, right? And they don't 
see you as a total stranger. It's not scary to them, but it's going to be a constant navigation too for these relationships because as people with dementia know and we're around dementia now, this isn't a one size game, you know, just get this particular type and then that's that's what you're going to get for the rest of your life. It changes every day and sometimes in the middle of the day. Um, so understanding that role is really, it's critical in understanding that that person is a person, but they're also, their needs will fluctuate and your, their ability to meet your needs in some of those ways is going to change quite a bit over time. I can see that the fluctuation piece, you're absolutely right. The person with dementia is like you said, from can change from moment to moment. We know this. And then often there's the slow gradual decline but you know, I'm also thinking about the caregiver too, that I've met with family members who have said, I don't look at my loved one the same way mm-hmm. that I did before. That the person who's living with dementia wants to initiate a sexual or intimate encounter. And the caregiver, the family caregiver is just like, I feel like I'm their parent. You know, it just doesn't, mm-hmm. I'm not attracted or but yet I still have needs or yep. again, I can, I imagine there's layers, whether you're talking about stress or grief and loss, or again, how uh, are you attracted to the person that you're living with? Maybe there's a history there that is at play. Yeah. I could see yeah, layers to that. For sure. I think that you have a lot of good questions embedded in these insights as well. And think One of the things that we should probably talk about is sexual advances, right, from folks who have dementia, because I think that that's difficult. Any real dementia-related behavioral issue that caregivers face is hard, and it can be a a sexual advance that is not really planned or purposeful, but that's what's happening just based on what's happening in their brain. Like, that's the expression of this disinhibition because a lot of your executive functions get lost, including judgment and planned behavior. And they may not know anything about what they're doing. They're just doing something because they feel a physiological need or because it's a learned behavior or however that may work. But regardless, it it is an issue. So these types of sexual advance and behaviors don't happen with everybody. We often find that only about a third or less and it can be far less. If we're looking in some studies, it's as few as under 10% of folks with any type of dementia will exhibit inappropriate sexual behaviors is what they're called. ISD, inappropriate sexual behaviors. And the basic behavioral management techniques are the same in a distraction way, in a, what is the underlying need here? How can I distract? How can I present something that meets whatever need is there? Like if Let's say we were talking about a physical touch need. Can I give a hand massage? Can I paint someone's nails? Can I give them a little scalp massage? Are there things that they're missing that they're acting in that way because of that? And that's often what we tell like care workers to do is let's do a real good behavioral analysis on what's happening before the behavior to kind of either cue something or have it happen, what happens after. What are some typical types of distraction behaviors that you can do if this is presented? And 
or have kind of this problem solving list of if this happens, then I'm going to, you know, say, not right now. I think that we actually have to go do this. And then if these things don't work, then you move on to a step up. But that's sort of the managing those non really controlled or purposeful sexual behaviors. But if someone with dementia maybe still is a bit is more cognizant of themselves and actually does want to engage in intimate behavior in more lucid moments, and that's not your thing because you just gave them a bath and wiped their butt, like, well, yeah, I mean, that's not what most of us call foreplay either. <laughs> so uh, it's hard. I'm going to give a shout out to those people. This is difficult because. This is even outside of what maybe a lot of people's limited foreplay script is. But if you're not in this, if this is not something you want to do, then this is not something you have to do. There are other arrangements to do this. There is solo sexual behavior for the person who has dementia. Are there ways in which you can provide that for them so they can get that kind of physiological sexual need? whether that's providing them with magazines, providing them with stimulation tools, et cetera, depending on their anatomical makeup is, but things that kind of meet their need, but don't um, make you cross the boundary because that's not what I'm about. You know, it's not like, well, the person wants to, and they have their thoughts with them. So better do it. You know, that would be like the worst couples counselor ever. (laughs) But I think that that's okay. You know, and, if you have a relationship with your loved one that is that you're still able to kind of converse and say, you know, that's not for me right now, but I've got this for you because I know this is important to you. And then there's the question that I'm sure is sort of the elephant in the room out here of how does that person have a sexually well life without their partner? And that goes for both person with dementia, but for sure the caregiver, because I think there is a lot more planfulness and purposefulness and like conceptualization of their own sexual wellness than is capable of someone maybe less more impairment. So there's no easy answer, is there? <laughs> no, 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 I'm so glad we're talking about this because this is, you know, I keep using the word layers, but you just, you go sure. down these rabbit holes. I mean, it's really, it can be deep. For sure. And we have to call out the grief and loss that's involved with somebody that you really once were intimate with uh, in in those ways. And yeah. I'm I'm glad you said that. It's a good reminder to take a moment to grieve for things that you no longer have. And that would be the same as if you could no longer have sexual intercourse because you are physical limitations. I'm a big fan proponent of grief at loss, but don't stop there. If that's not what your goal is for you to not ever have that in your life again, don't stop there. But think about the ways in which you are comfortable, given the cultural beliefs and background that you have, given the the internal values and things that you want. Take a good think about what ways that can work. And there are many, right? You could go all the way back to just your own solo sexual life and having more intimate connection with folks and more of a socially connected, good friends, good chats, deep conversation way. Or you could decide, 
I need something more. And this is the arrangement that I am comfortable with. I'm going to see other people. I'm going to, one, keep it physical. Two, be physical and have good conversation. Have another relationship. That is that part of my life. And that is a legitimate choice for a lot of people because the choice that they wanted is no longer on the table. That is also not a legitimate choice for a lot of people. So I want to be very clear that that isn't, you know, the only direction you need to go, but there are ways to think about the needs and the values that you have and how you can achieve that in the best possible way, but not give up. That is such a beautiful reminder. I think, Thank you. Really. I think people need to hear that it doesn't have to stop there. First of all, I just want to highlight that I mean, because we do, I mean, I think it's natural human part of, you know, when our whole quote lives have been built around a partnership with someone and then suddenly thing or not so suddenly things are changing and life doesn't look like the way you thought it would. And just knowing that doesn't mean that that's where life ends either, whether, right. whatever area of life you're applying that to. But then also, I think it's important for people to just hear and know what others have done, you know, and that it's not because this is so isolating, right? Like you said, we're not talking about aging problems. We're definitely not talking about sex and aging. And we're definitely not talking about dementia <laughs> with yeah. sex. And so what are you, yeah, what do caregivers, what do family members, what do spouses do about this? And how do, who do they share with and what are other people doing? And, you know, it's just, it's just so important. Thank you very much. I was going to say, I think one of the places to look to for a new commiserating, if you will, about what this is like for other people is to look to caregiver organizations and their social media groups and often I will have little topical things and whether it's sort of just the general loss of a relationship or a change of a relationship and it may not dial right down to I no longer get to have sex which is true for a lot of them but they're talking about the same types of things is finding and connecting with other folks who are caregivers who are spouses or partners or adult children or whatever it is where you find yourself isolated. We're better at that now than we used to be, but it also is challenging, right? If you've never been in those spaces, those are places where the caregivers hang out, right? And those are the places where I think it's there to find. And honestly, friends, I mean, I think about my own experiences and the people who are like a generation above me, like my parents and my in-laws and the way that they've been able to kind of navigate through some of these more difficult things is with friends, just as a sounding board, not as a, oh, me too. And this is what I did about it, but oh my gosh, that sucks. Yeah. Like hearing someone else say, oh my gosh, that sucks. Yes. Like, so what do you need me to do? Those things I think aren't lost on the person. So it might be embarrassing or difficult, but if you feel like you can stretch your friends and give that a try, that's a place to talk and just be honest. Another place is therapy. You know, there is no shame in seeking help for things that are bigger than we're all able to carry. 
And that is a good place to get an objective space, to be heard, to be empathized with, to be validated for your experiences. And if you have no other outlets for those things, or you have other outlets and you also need more support, I would encourage you to think about that because that's a, that's a great tool to be able to then feel like I can get back up to baseline. I can feel less stressed. I can feel less sad about this and I can keep going. Right. Right. And I've got a little bit clearer vision of what that might look like or yeah. what to do to maintain that. Yeah. I have two other questions just based on kind of this topic or this piece. I'm thinking kind of on the other end of the spectrum where I remember working with this gentleman, amazing man, his, his wife had early onset Alzheimer's and, oh, just my heart just goes out just even thinking about his situation, but he missed her deeply as you know, most people do. And he, they had a very healthy, robust sex life. And they were still having intercourse through her dementia journey. And he talked a lot about what, what does this mean? Like, how do I know when she's consenting or not? How do I know when it's okay or it isn't? And what are other people going to think, you know, if, you know, we're still, there's so much that was going through his mind about, I want to be respectful to her and do I let her advance or do I, or you know, and he shared a story about being in the middle of an intimate uh, situation. And he said she, he realized she didn't know what was going on and how it just, it not only scared him, but it brought so, uh, again, so much grief and confusion about how to handle that. And when, when she's fluctuating as far as her ability. So can you, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that piece for for folks? Yes, absolutely. I think this this is one of those like faces that I will inhabit and I'd like to inhabit, but this is a tough stuff. Yeah, this is really tough stuff. So when you're at home and you don't have anybody else kind of looking over and being protective of someone else's rights, like you do in institutional care, and the onus is on you to be aware of how your partner is responding to you. And I, I really like the story illustration because there's so many good points of that. Because even the fact that you're thinking about these questions of, and is she aware? Is he aware? Are they aware? Do, even if they don't really know it's me, but they recognize me as someone that they want to engage in this with. These are good questions. Oftentimes I will tell staff in in institutional care to look to behaviors because sometimes we don't have either accurate verbal accounts or we don't have verbal from folks, but what do their behaviors tell you? Is this something that they're willingly kind of coming into and answering back to? are the after effects of this behavior. They're becoming anxious around you. They don't want you to come near at all. Like that of course could be another sort of sundowning or worsening of impairment type thing. But if someone is engaging with you in something that makes them scared, 
and they don't want and they're confused by, you can bet that they will have behaviors that tell you that and afterwards as well. Like if you're coming into them and putting your arm on your hand on their arm and saying, it's time for dinner. And they're like, you know, and they know who you are, but they're pulling away or they're anxious or they're fearful. Those would be signs at more extreme level. But I think that the behavioral signs of all of a sudden there's a vacancy, there's a confusion, there's a, you're unaware there, they look unaware of what's happening. That is a time to say, okay, it looks like you're not into this right now. Maybe let's stop here and take the time to then maybe talk a little to them, but just be supportive. And is everything okay? Is there anything that you need? And, you know, then go in the shower and cry or whatever you need to right. do. Like, like all of us would in a relationship where they're like, oh no, what did I just do? Yeah. But know that you are doing the right thing. Right. There will be times. Yes. Yes. There will be times in every relationship, sexual or otherwise, where you cross a line that you didn't realize and then you have to repair. Right. Or you have to amend the way that you approach something. So know that you are okay. You are doing the right thing by being aware, by watching behaviors, by being attentive. It's okay to initiate. You know, apathy a lot of times is a, is a part of a dementia, particularly in Alzheimer's presentation. So you may not get much initiation, but you might get a, a response or you may get at least an engagement. And those things are good. When it becomes more difficult is when impairment is very progressive, right? So they're, un, they're not verbal. They're barely able to attend probably couldn't like sort of pay attention and look to you in the face. They might not be eating. I mean, those are times when you're likely probably not doing much aside from intimate behaviors, you know, look at what, what is okay then? Is it okay to hold hands? Is it okay to lie next to you in bed? Is it okay to caress your face? Can I give this person a kiss and keep sort of negotiating those things as you go along? Yeah. Is, is that some useful tips there? Oh my gosh. So helpful. (laughs) I know our listeners can't see me, but I've been writing down all these notes. I have two more questions that I want to throw at you. One, and I'm already thinking, Maggie, I'm going to have to have you back (laughs) because one of the questions is about facilities. And so many of our listeners have a spouse or a parent that lives in a memory care facility. And I think most people think that because their loved one now lives in a facility that their sex life is done or ended. And so I know this is going to, this will be a hard question for you to answer quickly because I think, again, I'd love to have you back on. If you're interested, we can talk a ton about facilities, I'm sure, and plans and, and how to support folks. But just briefly for those listening right now, how, what are some things to think about if your loved one lived in a facility and you want to continue to have a sex life with them. One thing I would do is talk about that to the administration and their care team somewhat upfront. doesn't have to be the first moment that you step in when you're doing the intake, but you do want to talk about that early to say, this is a relationship that's ongoing with us. It's been historically this way. 
we would like to continue to engage in this. I want to understand what that's like from your perspective and what you need from me and what I need from you is this. So I would have that conversation early and I would, you know, periodically have that conversation and negotiate visit, right? So negotiating visits and one thing is privacy. A lot of places don't have a lot of private rooms or private spaces for folks to be. So we'll have to discuss and depending on the mobility of the person in the nursing home, whether or not they can do a home visit, whether or not, you know, the person can come into the room and a roommate can be, you know, in a, another space. So those are negotiating points. But the first thing to do is just ask them because some people will straight up be like, no way, we don't do that here. And that's a conversation, right? Because that is a right of people. <laughs> Homes don't love to acknowledge that, but they're, and they may have some questions, right? Like, well, what's your partner's diagnosis? How has this been going at home? We might need the psychiatrist to weigh in or the social worker and how we would negotiate this. We need it to be part of a care plan. And those are fine things. But I think that the, the most likely answer is going to be like, we don't know. Uh, you're the first person to say this. So come in with a kind of an idea of what you need. I would like to come on a weekly basis on this day and spend an hour alone with my with my partner and I will be in charge of like keeping them happy at that point but what needs to happen in that space. Cuz I think too you know again I'm thinking of another couple that or another caregiver that I worked with whose wife had dementia and lived in a memory care and part of their routine was they would cuddle, you know, it wasn't, they weren't even having intercourse, but they would strip down and get in bed and cuddle. And that was such an intimate part of their relationship. And it was the way it kept them connected, you know, through the dementia and through all the change. And so I just remember negotiating that, you know, even that (laughs) was parameters and, you know, um, care planning. Yeah. Um, but it was important. And I think that, so for our family members out there that might have older parents or, you know, how do we advocate and support the intimacy in whatever way that occurs for, for those folks. So is there anything else that that's kind of my second question that I wanted to ask is what about those that are out there that have parents, you know, that we're caring for or advocating for, where one's in a facility or one isn't, where they're both at home, or is there any any advice or place to, to be aware of or ways to support? And I'm kind of chuckling a little because what kid wants to like be involved <laughs> with their parents' sex life, right? Right. right. <laughs> like, but for those that might, <laughs> yeah, what can what can um, they be doing? I think similarly, having a discussion with the folks who are providing care for your parents or parents, depending who they are, about what you would like to see as part of their care plan for this aspect, for their intimate life to continue in whatever capacity it is that you, know, you feel like you've determined, or maybe even those folks who are really on the ball to have you know, talked about this or in a lot of times there's a lot of history, right? We've alluded to this in relationships where you're like, well, look, they've been 
sexual their whole adult lives and they do now and now we're putting them in a nursing home and we want them to be able to have intimate connection together whether or not that's in the same room they're able to be in the same room mom's able to visit dad or dad's able to visit dad and uh, in there there's got to be a negotiation space as well for that including in-home care right that comes into the house and provides care because they need to be aware that this is a need and this is something that may happen and this then there is a way to support that so having that conversation with them and i will say there are a few you know the long term care ombudsman national organization has a site where they have some a sort of a primer on sexuality and long-term care in those settings. And I can follow up with you, Laura, about a link for that. But there's just some basic information about what it might be that's happening in long-term care facilities and what an ombudsman's role might be in this place. Because an ombudsman is a great advocate if you're in a long-term care space. Not all of them have heard of have advocated for someone's sexual needs, but all of them have advocated for patients and residents and helped families. And this is just another way that you could have a conversation with them and with administration to say, how can we make this happen? Um, In the home, right? That with a home care worker, it's a little harder. Trying to do this yourself, more power to you. And I love it, but it's a, it's something that you may have to like, think really like, how can I help make this happen in a way that's safe, whether they're both under your house, uh, under your roof, living, or you're going to their place, or one is in your home. Uh, It's also some of the stuff that we talked about before with like, do they need solo stimulation? How can we make that happen? Because if they can't access or go to the store or drive, like Amazon is a, is a lifesaver, like, Nobody has to know. It shows up in a cardboard box, just like everything else. So there may be some creative ways to do that if you're the one in charge of essentially the care for your parent. But yeah, another resource I'll throw out, and I admit I'm a little biased, <laughs> is a, a care manager, geriatric care manager, or the perfect um, like idea, life care professionals. Yeah, that can help families navigate. How to, how to care plan, whether, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm a big fan of quote care planning at home. You know, you don't have to be in a facility to have a, a care plan or you can call it a wellness plan, but basically how are we, the family talking to the caregivers about this? What is our expectation about these outside caregivers coming in? Mm-hmm. And then of course, doing that at home too. That's a great resource. I think in general, especially it will definitely help in the area of you liaising between all of these fragmented often care spaces that your parent and or partner might come into. Right. Whether, really it's sibling, like whether it's the family members themselves or it's yeah. the, the professional, the, the directors or the nurse managers or the, yeah. The That's right. This is such a good conversation. <laughs> Maggie, I really appreciate knowing you and just, I know we could go on for hours. So I'm <laughs> serious. I'll be, I'll be messaging you about our next episode. Perfect. <laughs> really, it's such an important topic. And I can see just in the beginning of, of our conversation about the his sort of 
laying the stage, you know, and looking at all the different factors you mentioned, the biological, the psychological, the social, the cultural values, and then the next layer, like I said, being dementia, (laughs) being involved with dementia, and, and then whether you live in facilities or not, or there's just so much, so much here. Is there any way if people wanted to learn more about you or more about this topic in general, is there a place that you would recommend or how, yeah, how could people learn a little more? There are a couple of places that have some information. And as I said, I can give you the link to the National Ombudsman Group. And, and as I'll, well, put the, I'll put them in the yeah. show notes for everyone so you don't Perfect. have to write them down right no now. Worries. <laughs> no worries. Also, the National Institute on Aging has a, another sort of information primer on this topic. The Alzheimer's Association has a set of slides and workshops that have been done regionally in different places that I can also try to link up to you so that they can have a few of those. And there is also a couple of research articles that are more open, open access that aren't like stuffy and inaccessible that I can uh, send your way as well for people who are interested in just an overview of some of these areas, in particular, the dementia and long-term care spaces because those those are tricky. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much, Maggie. You're really welcome. Appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have comments or would like to send us a message, you can send it to hello at lifeonrepeatpodcast.com. Please also consider following us at Life on Repeat Podcast, either on Instagram or Facebook. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute, nor is it meant to convey professional, legal, psychological, financial, or medical advice. If you can use such services, please seek them out from someone you trust.